The teaching this evening comes from Psalm 130. This is God's word. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're, as Matt just read, we're looking at Psalm 130 tonight. <clears throat> as we, uh, if you're uh, visiting or, or been away a few weeks, we're working our way through a section of the Psalms. There's 150 of them. And we're just looking at a section that's often referred to as the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134. And these Psalms are, you could summarize as, as being all about the journey of faith. Uh, what's it like? Uh, how do you navigate it? What are the ups and the downs, the, the, the fits and the starts? What is its destination? Um, how do you get from where you are now to your true home? And last week we looked at Psalm 129, and one of the things we noticed from Psalm 129 was that the life of faith is not fragile, but it's actually resilient And we also noticed it's resilient not because of us, but because of God and His righteousness, His faithfulness. And when we come to Psalm 130, what we see about the life of faith is that it goes deep. It goes deep. It goes into the very depths of despair in order to give hope to the hopeless through faith in Jesus. So what I want to do is look at Psalm 130 tonight with you and look at the cry of despair and the practice of waiting and then the nurturing of hope. So first, let's look at the cry of despair. I just want you to to look with me in verses 1 through 2 for a moment and linger there. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. I just want you to think about the experience we're we're introduced to from Psalm 130. This is often referred to as also one of the penitential psalms, one of the psalms of confession, and we'll see in a moment why that's the case. But right at the very beginning when the psalmist begins with out of the depths. That, that word there, depths, uh, if you were to, to, to take that word and look throughout the Bible, it, it, it raises or it, it draws out the, the imagery of water. Deep, dark, black water. And one of the things that the imagery of water communicates in the Bible is chaos. A sense of feeling out of control, of being utterly consumed, completely overwhelmed by trouble. And here, this is where the psalm begins. It's a psalm of 
feeling overwhelmed, of drowning, of discouragement, of despair, of hopelessness, even a sense of loneliness, a sense of even beyond earshot, maybe even beyond God's earshot. Psalm 69, uh, verses 1 and 2 says very similar things when it begins in verse 1 and 2. says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, um, if you ever have this thought, or maybe someone's asked you, what is your, your worst possible way of dying? For me, drowning ranks up at the, at the very top. Just the idea of drowning terrifies me. And this psalm just terrifies me to read when I begin to read it in light of Psalm 62 and what the Bible means by the depths. This is a situation, this is an experience where somebody is... They're not able to hang on anymore. Life is consuming them. They're utterly overwhelmed. And why do we need psalms like this? The reason that we need psalms like this is because when the depths begin to close in on you, what happens is you begin to lose your voice. You begin to wonder, does anybody know? Is anybody aware Can anybody hear me? And it's in those moments when you can't find words, you need these words. Somebody has already prayed prayers like this. They've experienced the very same things. And they can put those words into your circumstances and give you a voice when you lose your own. So how does Psalm 130 then give us these words? How does it help us to pray in experiences like this? I want to point out just two things here in the opening verses. First of all, in verse 1 and 2, one of the things that we notice from this psalm, by sheer fact that it's in the Scriptures, and it's prayed out of this kind of experience, there is nothing that is beyond the reach of prayer. There is no life situation that puts you beyond prayer's reach. And prayer always reaches God's ears. God is never deaf. So nothing is beyond the reach of prayer, no matter how overwhelming or engulfed we may feel, this psalm teaches us that we're never cut off. Listen how Psalm 139 helps us to see that this is in fact the case. If I ascend to heaven, you are there, speaking of God. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. Here's here's what I want you to see. Very basic. 
But God goes with his people to the highest highs, to the lowest lows, and to the darkest of the dark. That's what Psalm 130 helps us to see, that nothing is beyond the reach of prayer. But not only that, as we move into verses 3 and 4, we begin to discover that this psalm isn't talking about just troubles in general or even um, unfavorable circumstances. He's talking about despair and depths of discouragement because of sin, because of his own sin. It says here that, listen to what he says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What we discover here, why we need this psalm, is because God relates to us by grace and not by merit. By grace and not by merit. Listen here for a moment. What do you think for a moment? What, what would it mean for God to mark iniquities? That's a kind of a not a word that we use a whole lot. Iniquities. Iniquities in, in, in just real broad terms, we'll talk about a little bit more deeply in a few moments, but it essentially describes wrongdoing or sin. What the Bible calls living your life for yourself rather than for God. But to mark those iniquities, to keep track of them, would be to keep a running tab, a running list. And here we're told, if God did that, no one would be able to stand up before him, have a good standing with him. Now, I want you to think for a moment about what this is talking about. Imagine for a moment that you're in a room, and in that room is recorded everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done. It is a complete and exhaustive record of your life. Every word, every action, every thought, every motive, every website, Every phone call, every text message, every moment of the night, every single success, every single failure, it's all there in that room. Now imagine if that room was opened up to your family, to your friends, and to every acquaintance that you've ever known. My guess is that some of us, there would, be, there would be things in there that we'd be really proud of. And we'd be happy for people to come in and see and take notice of. But I guess there would be perhaps as much and probably a whole lot more that we would be utterly mortified if anybody knew about us. Utterly terrified to be exposed like that. And to have all of our, our entire life counted, kept track of, tallied up. And my guess is that for most of us, the impulse would be to hide. How do we conceal those things? And I think the way that we tend to do that is we tend to say, how can I cover myself up? with all the things I want people to see about me. 
and hope that those things actually hide everything I don't want people to see about me. Now, here's the problem with that. The things that you do that you are proud of can only make you better at hiding. But they can never actually deal with the very things that you are hiding. Let me try to say that again. You see, the very things that you might keep track of and you hope that other people would keep track of and pay most attention to, all they will do is make you better at hiding, at concealing. They cannot give you a good standing with God. But here's the good news about this. Notice what he says. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What he's saying here is that God does not keep track. God does not look at you and look at each of your days and tally up. Here, there's a good column and there's a bad column. And let's hope that the good column outweighs the bad column. And maybe the good column can actually make up for the bad column and cover it up. That is not how God works. It says, with you, there is forgiveness. See, why is that so important for you to know? Because when you are in the depths of despair, because your own weaknesses and failings are too much for you to handle, you have to have something better than, I hope the things I'm proud of can cover me. Because, really, that's what a lot of people think Christianity is. But really, Christianity says, I need covering even for the best things that I've done. Even my good deeds fall short. There's only one thing left, and it's forgiveness. And here, the psalmist, in the midst of his despair, is discovering that nothing can bar him from prayer. And why is that? Because God forgives. Nothing, neither troubles nor guilt or shame over sin, can become a barrier with the God who forgives. Now, when the bottom drops out of your life, you need to know that there are words with which you can pray. You need to know that God forgives, that he does not keep track. And we're going to see in a few minutes, how is that possible? How can God actually not keep track? How is that actually just? How can I rely on that? But for the moment, I want you to think about when the bottom drops out of your life, you also feel powerless and out of control. So what do you do? I want to look at the practice of waiting I want you to think for a moment, just in the normal course of your everyday life. Maybe it's at work, maybe it's a friendship, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's parenting, uh, where something is happening that you wish could be different and would be different, and you feel utterly powerless to do anything about it, and you find yourself saying, there's just nothing, there's nothing for me to do. I, I cannot do anything. What I hope that 
you, you, you begin to see from this psalm is that that is always a lie. Always a lie. Let me show you what I mean. At the very center of this psalm, look in verses 5 and 6. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Now, it gets lost in the English here, but the word here, wait, in verse 5 and in verse 6, and the word hope in verse 5, are all, the, are all could be translated the same way. They could all either, either be translated wait, they could all be translated hope, they could all be translated long for or count on. The basic idea here is there is always something to do. In verses 5 and 6, that something to do is to wait on the Lord. Now, I realize to put it that way may sound like a bit of an oxymoron, like how is waiting doing something? And that's why I think he includes this image of the watchman waiting for the morning. Uh, My guess is very few of us here have any experience with a sentry or a watchman, a person whose job... Uh, maybe if you're in the Navy and you had to stand a post or in some military branch where that was something you had to do, or maybe if you're a camp counselor somewhere and you had um, like night security duty or something, uh, but it's not something that we do very much. But a watchman is somebody whose job is to stay up all night, to fight off sleep, to remain attentive. And to look for the rising of the sun in the morning. And his job, while it may appear very passive and like not doing much, it's the watchman who stands watch over the city, who provides protection over the city, who listens for noises and robbers and anything that would threaten the place over which he is watching. And so what I want you to think about here is that the point that the writer is trying to convey to us is it's not so much something for you to do, it's it's more important for someone for you to be. Are you a person who watches, who waits? This is a very important person, someone who watches and waits But it takes practice. It takes practice because our eyes, our ears, and especially our hearts, they need to become seasoned to this task of waiting. Now, I don't know about you, but my guess is I'm old enough, most of us I think are old enough, to remember when there was no internet. Uh, And there definitely was no Amazon Prime where you could order what you wanted and it showed up the next day. I still remember having to call from a phone that you had to, the, I don't even remember what they're called, rotary phone, all the stores to find out if there was something that you could buy. 
only to save time so you don't have to drive everywhere. This whole idea of ordering for all of Christmas on one day on the Internet is totally crazy. We don't like to wait, ever. We text message. I mean, one classic example is I can't wait to drive home without texting my wife. I mean, the idea of having to wait even just 10 minutes. I'm not telling you if I'm texting while I'm driving or not, but um, okay, you can laugh at that. I'm giving you freedom to admit that you all do probably the same thing, but don't do that. Um, we don't like to wait, but waiting takes practice. Now, what does it mean to wait? Look here in verse 5. It means to hope in God's word. It means to hope in God's word. Now, when you step back and think about that for a moment, what it means is every single one of us here is hoping in something. You are either hoping in a good word from a spouse or an employer or children or friends. Every single one of us must give your heart to something. That's what it means to put your hope in something. What it means to wait, for my soul to wait, is to put your hope in the word of the Lord. And this is not some uh, fatalistic resignation, nor is it some uh, sort of fantasy dream to ward off our boredom or our pain. It is a confident expectation that God will do what he has said he will do. Waiting on the Lord, hoping in his word, essentially means letting God do things his way. Now, I realize that that is really hard to do. That's hard to do in your own home. That's hard to do with friends. That's, it's always hard to let somebody do things the way they think it ought to be done. And what I'm trying to say here is that hope, an act of faith, if I could put it this way, means delegating all of your hopes, all of your desires, and delegating them to God, entrusting them to Him. And then, trusting Him with what you don't know. Waiting on the Lord, the practice of waiting on Him. Now, as I've said, waiting's hard. Hoping is hard. Especially when, as this psalm puts in front of us, life is pressing in. Life is pressing in, and in, in, in guilt and shame have a way of telling you that you are, you're hopeless, that you're beyond recovery. And therefore, hope has to be nurtured. It has to be watered. It has to be fed. So let's look at verses 7 to 8 here on the nurturing of hope. And I want to begin very simply, verse 7, the very first phrase, O Israel, hope in the Lord. See, the nurturing of hope begins with encouragement. Encouragement. Now, I think encouragement is a lot like saying, I love you to someone. 
You can say, I love you to someone. But for every time uh, you have to correct someone or maybe confront someone, especially I'm thinking here in terms of parents and children, for every you know, five times you have to discipline a child, they need to hear I love you like 50 times. Encouragement works like that. Encouragement and, and discouragement or encouragement and despair are not equal players. Despair looms much larger and more heavy than encouragement does. And so one of the things I think would be great in, in your community groups this coming week or perhaps the next time you get together or if you're just around the table at home is just to ask the question, what would it look like for us to practice encouraging one another? To hope in the Lord. I don't mean encouragement that just sort of puffs somebody's ego. I mean specifically what's said here. Encouragement to hope in the Lord. Encouragement to maybe identify, talk about where, the, where, where have I put my hope? And how is that going? What are the things about God I need to hope in that I find hard to hope in? be a great thing for you to do. And in fact, I would say that a distinctive mark of a true gospel community is a community that is just soaking in encouragement. I think it's something that I know I I have a lot of room to grow in that, and I suspect many of us do. But nurturing hope begins with encouragement. And so what then does the psalmist encourage us with? Notice, The rest of verse 7 and 8. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. There are three things here that he encourages us with. Let me show you. The first one is the steadfast love of the Lord. What's he have in mind here? Think about this for a moment. God's love is never ending. I forgot I was going to, I meant to write this down, but if any of you are familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible, describes God's love as the, the never ending, always and forever. Some of you probably could quote it for me. It never breaks, it never stops. It's steadfast, it's consistent, it never wavers, however much you and I might waver. And in fact, what we discover in light of the gospel. Nothing can separate you from his love in Christ. Hope in the Lord, in his steadfast love. Secondly, though, he describes overflowing redemption or plentiful redemption. Do you ever have the feeling that God's sort of um, holding out on you or coming up short? Or that he might actually pull the rug out from under you. Here what we're being told is you can be encouraged to hope in the Lord because his redemption is rich. It's plentiful. It's abundant. In other words, you lack nothing. Paul tells us that how will will God not give us all things with Christ? 
Because he has given us Jesus, how will he not with him give us all things? God's redemption is rich and full and plentiful. But then lastly, this redemption, this salvation saves from all sin. Notice the word there in verse 8. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Remember, this is a psalm that has at its heart anguish over sin, guilt and shame. And here we're being told that there is not one aspect of sin in your life that God cannot redeem. Not one thing. Doesn't matter if you you consider yourself a Christian, this good news is on offer to you. It doesn't matter if you don't remember ever not being a Christian. You've been a Christian your whole life. There is nothing that God's salvation cannot redeem. There is no person that God's grace cannot redeem. Now, how can you be sure about that? I want you to remember, these prayers come to us first through Jesus, and they are about him. Remember, Jesus prayed these prayers with his mom and dad three times a year as they would make their journey to Jerusalem. In other words, I want you to think about Psalm 130 first and foremost about Jesus as a prayer that he prayed. This is my alarm again. A prayer that he prayed. Now, when did he pray those prayers? Think about it like this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in the night when he was betrayed, he prays to his father in deep anguish, out of the depths of despair, not of his own sin, but the sin he was on the way to the cross to bear. And he says, he, he prayed that the cup might pass from him, and yet he says, yet not my will, your will be done. And then, as if that wasn't, Enough, on the cross he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus prayed this prayer, Out of the depths of my despair I cry out to you. How do you know that you can pray that way? No matter where you are, in the depths of depression, discouragement, anxiety, fear, hopelessness, and know you will be heard and that you will not be forsaken. The only answer to that question is that Jesus was forsaken on the cross. And that's what every single one of us deserve, is to be forsaken, to be left in the depths of despair, for God not to hear our our cry, for God to count and keep track of all of our iniquities. But that's not what he does. And the only reason he doesn't do that is because he sent Jesus. And think about this. What do you most need to know when you are in the depths of despair? What you need to know is that someone is with you, that they love you, that they're not going to leave you, that they will be with you in it and see you through it. Do you remember what Jesus' name means? Emmanuel. 
God with us. You see, the cross isn't just some theological answer to our difficulty. The cross is the good news that God is with you. And he will never leave you or forsake you. And the cross tells you that God loves sinners. Here's the good news. God never minimizes or explains away our troubles and despair, but neither does he allow for sin and despair to usurp hope in his word. Do you feel like God's word has just lost its grip or its power in your life? If that's you tonight, I just want to point you back to Jesus and the cross. Spend some time there. Ask God to help you to discover once again that he is a God who forgives. That he does not treat you according to what you deserve, but he treats you according to his grace and his love poured out in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for psalms like this and words that you give us like this that help to put real words to our real experience. Thank you for not making light of how hard life can be, even when uh, perhaps we are the ones who make it hard. We ask, Father, that you would continue to persuade us that you make us stand before you, that we stand justified righteous before you because of Jesus through faith in him. And in him we find hope. And that hope never disappoints. Would you please do that? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.